Good morning. With me to Genesis chapter 30. We're doing the uh, second half of Genesis 30 and all of 31. So what I'm going to do is um, we're going to read the end of chapter 30. And um, and then we're going to skip over and we're going to read a few verses at the end of chapter 31. Some of you are ADD like me. You have a hard time following if we try to read all that. Be asleep. So let's begin in verse 25. Now, just set the scene for you, okay? So Jacob is married to Leah and Rachel. They've had a number of children. Verse 25, we get a little, just the, the connector is that after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. So Jacob's heart, his inclination is towards home, uh, towards his land. So that's kind of what he has in his mind, and that's where the story picks up. And of course, you'll remember that up to this point, Jacob and, Jacob and Laban have had somewhat of a strained relationship, and he is, uh, he's worked for a good period of time, um, 14 plus years at least at this point. And so we are, uh, we're at this point here where his heart is elsewhere, and so that kind of sets the scene for us. So let's pick up verse 26. Jacob said, Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I found favor in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages, and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, You know how I've worked for you, and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? But what shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied, but if you'll do this one thing for me, I'll go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat, and they will be my wages, and my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check on the wages that you have paid me. Any goat in my possession that's not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark-colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day, you can cue the dark music here. That same day, he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them and all the dark colored lambs. And he placed them in the care of his sons. And then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Verse 37, Jacob, however, dun, 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 took fresh cut branches from poplar, almond, 
and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they all would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. And the flocks were in heat and came to drink. They made it in front of the branches and they all, and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and spotted colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to, to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. Chapter 31, we'll read the first two verses. And Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father has owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. No kidding. If you'll turn over to verse 43. Laban answered Jacob. Now, in the intervening period, Jacob has left with Leah and Rachel and the children and his herds. And they have gone their way and they're out in front of Laban by three days. Laban, in hot pursuit, caught them after seven days. He's gone through the tents to look for his idols that Rachel had taken. And we're now in the conversation that Laban and Jacob are having, having concerning his departure. Verse 43, Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and he set, up it, he set it up as a pillar and he said to his relatives, gather some stones. And so they took stones and they piled them up in a heap and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jigger Shaduth and Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galid. It was also called Mitzpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. And Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. And he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to the meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. And early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and he blessed them. And then he left and returned home. Let me pray. 
Father, thanks for your word this morning as we come to it. May our meditations upon it and the words of my lips concerning it be acceptable in your eyes. For your glory. Amen. No two relationships are alike. No two relationships are created equal. The marriage relationship is not the same as the parent-child relationship. The sibling relationship is not the same as the friend relationship. The neighbor relationship is not the same as the family relationship. The in-law relationship is not the same as the marriage relationship, and so on. You know this from experience in your lives. No relation, the, the relationships that you have in your life, none of them are the same. They're all different. They all have different components to them. When, when we come to this, these couple of chapters, story of Jacob and Laban, they have a relationship together. Their relationship is very complicated. And as you've seen from the stories, we've looked at it, it's often in disarray. Lots of parts and pieces, not a very healthy relationship. But at the very end, when we come to the end of this relationship, it's interesting. Because it seems to end in a peaceful way. When Laban and Jacob part at the very end of the passage, you will notice that early in the morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and he blessed them. And then he left and returned home. Having made a covenant with Jacob, having sat down and had a meal with Jacob, he rises in the morning, he kisses them, and he leaves and he goes home. Sometimes, sometimes, that's what a relationship needs. It needs for there to be a separation, for the parties to be apart and to be at peace. You'll notice that I've titled the sermon, The Heart of a Right Relationship. And if you know anything of chapter 30 and chapter 31 of Genesis... It's an awkward relationship that Jacob and Laban have at best. But I didn't title it the heart of a good relationship. I didn't title it the heart of a perfect relationship. I didn't title it the heart of a bountiful relationship. I titled it the heart of a right relationship. Because every relationship is different. When Jody and I first got married... I don't think I have to ask for permission to tell this story. But when we first got married, we lived in, uh, on college campus. And my parents and her parents were not terribly far from us. But they, had, they, they established themselves boundaries. And all the years that Jody and I have been married, 24 years, did I get that right? 24 just celebrate an anniversary. Neither of our parents have ever stopped by our home unannounced. Not once. And not because we haven't lived there half the time, but uh, even when we did live there, we lived within a mile, two miles of my parents, just a few miles from her parents. They would never have dreamed of coming to our home without calling us. And they rarely even ever called us and said, hey, 
but it was always in the context of our relationship. They knew we were a family. We were living our lives. They knew that they had given us away to each other, and so we, we left them, and we cleaved, and we went, and we formed our own family, and we had our own thing going on, and this, there was never this constant intersection. Every relationship is different. Perhaps yours was different. That's okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm. But you know from your own context the different styles and types of relationships that go on. In this story, one of the things that we're going to see is Jacob and Laban have a very strained and stressful relationship. But in the end, we learn that there are some things, that there are some common themes that run through right relationships. We all want our relationships to be right. So let's look at it. The heart of a right relationship has two broken parties, has an ear that hears God, and has a sacrifice at its center. Let's do this first one. The heart of a right relationship has two broken parties. Now, at first, when you hear that, you may think to yourself, how can a right relationship have two broken parties? How can the parties be equally messed up and for the relationship to be right? Listen, in order for any relationship to be truly right, the parties involved must understand that they are broken. In order for a relationship to be right, you have to understand that you're broken. And it's important that both parties understand that. When you work your way through this story, one of the things that you notice, especially in the section that we're looking at, is that Jacob and Laban are both schemers. So in the section that we just read at the end of chapter 30, you see, right, they make a pact. And the pact is that Jacob is going to get all the spotted and all the runts of the litter is essentially what Jacob is going to get. And that's going to be his flock. And he's going to get to herd them. And if they grow and flourish, then he grows and he flourishes. But those aren't the, those aren't the animals of choice. And, and Laban schemes to make it even more difficult by taking out some of the animals from the flock. So he selectively is, is winnowing down the, the animals that Jacob himself gets to keep. But then Jacob is a schemer himself. And he thinks, well, I've got, I've got tools in my bag. I'll show you. And so he puts into effect this very strange breeding process. If you look at the beginning of chapter 32, a little section that we didn't read, it's around verse 6 to 9, you'll notice that when Jacob communicates to his wives, Rachel and Leah, that they're leaving, he says, God has blessed me by giving me of your father's wealth. In the end, Jacob got it. In the end, Jacob understood it wasn't about, you know, striped and speckled poles and all this sort of stuff. It was about God's favor on him. And Jacob understood that. He realized that to some degree, but it didn't mean he wasn't a schemer. It didn't mean he wasn't trying to pull one over on Laban, just like Laban was trying to pull one over on him. And so they're both in this together. 
They're, they, listen, when Jacob meets Laban, it's, it's, you know, Darth Vader is meeting, I don't know, give me another bad comic character, you know? Two bad guys, two guys that were doing it the wrong way, meet up. And of course we know Laban kind of, Laban's a little bit sharper than Jacob is at this whole pulling the wool over somebody's eyes. And so he puts Jacob in position where he has to fight back. So they're both down in the trenches getting muddy, getting messy. And to some degree, they realize it. They understand it. They know when Laban is coming to meet, he's coming to hunt down Jacob. God comes and intercedes and says to him, don't lay a hand on Jacob. God intervenes and lets him know, I'm watching. I know what's happening. Don't do this. What you're about to do is wrong. And so here are Jacob and Laban, both of them in this relationship. And there must be an understanding in their hearts that neither of them are doing this the right way. That they're both doing it the wrong way. And in a relationship, it must happen for it to be right. The parties have to understand that they are both in need, that they're both broken. You can't have a right relationship. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone who believed they did no wrong, you get it. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone who can't say, I'm wrong, who can't say, I'm sorry, I did so-and-so, who can't own, own their stuff, you know the frustration and the difficulty in moving forward with that, that person. Be it a friendship, be it a spousal relationship, whatever it is. Because you have to arrive at the point at which you know you're broken in order for that relationship to move in the right direction. So I always talk, we often talk about it with respect to the gospel. Where does a right relationship with God begin? It doesn't begin with going, well, look at me. Look at how awesome I am. I'm doing things the right way. I'm serving you, God. It begins with an acknowledgement of our sin. That's where a right relationship. And so that's what we always say, right? Confessing your sin isn't what kills you. What kills you is a failure to go there. And so here in the story, we have two broken parties that are coming together. I believe that they both understood their brokenness, which is why we see what we see at the end of the story. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. (coughs) Sorry. So the very fact that we're broken means that our relationships, right, are never going to be perfect. They're always going to involve some level of of dysfunction. But in order for them to be right, the parties have to be at a place where they're willing to admit their brokenness. And that's the place to begin. Let's look at the second point. The heart of a right relationship has an ear that hears God. And this is really a very simple and straightforward point. After all of the scheming has taken place, Jacob is gaining wealth. Laban's servants recognize what is going on. There's been a transfer of wealth from Laban's flocks to Jacob's flocks. They're conversing about it. And then we have that wonderful little massively understated comment about hmm, your dad's attitude towards me hasn't quite been what it used to be. Really? 
you think? Um, perhaps it has to do with your flocks you know, doubling, tripling, quadrupling in size. Verse 3 of chapter 31 tells us that God, the Lord, spoke to him and told him that it was time to return to the land of promise. And then he tells Jacob, I will be with you. You look at it in chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. And Jacob hears. Verse 4 confirms, not only did God speak, Jacob heard. He had an ear to hear what God was saying to him. In order for a relationship to be right, at least one party has to have ears to hear. At least one party in the relationship has to have an open ear to hear God. If you're in a relationship, you know someone that's in a relationship in which one of the parties doesn't hear, one of the parties does, please encourage them to, encourage them to stay the course. Right? The Bible talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about the unbelieving spouse and laboring in that difficulty. And yes, it is difficult. Yes, it is laboring. When, when one party doesn't hear the Lord and one party does, but what a faithful opportunity for witness. And in this story, I think both of them hear God. Because God comes and he visits Laban and he tells Laban, don't lay a hand on Jacob. And when he meets Jacob, he ain't laying a hand on him. And, and he isn't um, rebuking him in an uh, inappropriate way because God came and met with him too and spoke to him. And so Jacob... In the story, he comes, he tells Rachel and Leah that the God of his father has been with me. And he goes on and he tells them essentially that God has been with him all along, conversing with him. In verse 13, he, God comes and he even tells Jacob that he is the God of Bethel. And so Jacob knows this is the Lord. This is God communicating to me, letting me know that I am on the right track, that I am to move, I am to go. Now, I want you to think about what I'm not encouraging you to do is to go home, dial in your radio and listen for God's voice in it or, or however you want to do it. That's not at all the point. Jacob didn't have the benefit of having the wisdom of God's word, of, of having the history of God's actions. He's living in the moment. And remember, Abraham... Isaac and Jacob. It's a special crew. Jacob's a, a different guy. He's a, he is a frontline patriarch of the faith. And so God is dealing with him. Now let me ask you, where do you hear God? Where do we hear God? Where, where do we learn this wisdom, this relationship wisdom? Well, Peter tells us that God has given to us Everything that we need for life and for godliness. When I read that, I take that to mean that all of the wisdom, knowledge that is necessary to make good relationship decisions is already in our possession. We already have it. They might not be easy decisions. They might, we might not always see the wisdom that is ready and available to us. 
but it's there. So we don't, we don't have to go into our prayer closet and hope that we hear God tell us something. We can go to the Word. We can go to fellow saints. And we can see and hear that wisdom from them without having to hear directly from God as Jacob did. And the question is, do you have ears to hear? Is your heart open, ready to hear from God in that way? As he directs us in our relationships. All right, let's look at this third point. The third point is that every right, the heart of every right relationship has a sacrifice at its core. In the story, in verse 51 of chapter 31, as you move to the end of it, Laban and Jacob arrive here. They're going their separate ways. They pile up stones. They, they make a covenant together. Laban swore by the God of Abraham and Nahor, and Jacob swore by the God of his father Isaac. You'll notice when you see that, it says the fear of his father Isaac. And fear is capitalized. And the implication there is this is he is praying to the God of his father Isaac. And so the two men have set up the they've set up the pillar of stones, which is often a memorial. This is the reminder. And it also serves as a marker for Laban and for Jacob. Right? They're not going to cross. These men are going to have a right relationship, but they're not going to have contact with each other. Sometimes that's the heart of a right relationship. Sometimes that's what needs to happen. But they're parting in peace. That's the important part. But how do they get there? How do they get to this peaceful part? Well, we already talked about it. Laban gets up. He kissed the grandchildren. He goes on. But there's a little detail that binds the whole story together, and it's found in verse 54. In verse 54, we read this. Jacob offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. Ah. It's a very subtle, small deed. You would normally just read right over it. That is the heart of the text. That is the core of this right relationship. A meal and a sacrifice. Or, if you will, a sacrifice and a meal. A covenant meal. The breaking of bread. A meal is in the Old Testament specifically, and that culture was symbolic of peace. It's symbolic to sit down with someone and to eat with them, to, to, as the text would say, sup with them. It's where we get supper from. So they sit and they have this meal. It's the same way today. When was the last time you called up you know, the business guy that, you you know, you do dealings with that you can't stand. He grinded. Hey, want to get together and have lunch? No. That's just, you, you know, when they call and they ask you to lunch, you're like, oh, man, what am I going to do? How do I get out of this? You know? Because supping, dining with someone requires some level of a right relationship. You don't typically call and invite your enemies list over for dinner at your house. You invite the people with which you have a right relationship. Take your Bibles, if you will. If you have it, turn to Revelation 3.20. 
Now, this is a passage probably every one of you is familiar with because your grandmother had a picture back in the back bedroom of this passage on her wall. And it's a picture of Jesus standing at a closed door with a big red heart. Are you all familiar with this picture? And he's rapping on the door. But I want you to notice what Revelation 3.20 says. Revelation 3.20 to the church of Laodicea. We'll start in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Now that's where every Armenian stops. But it goes on. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what? I will come in and sup with him. That's what the old text says. I will come in and I will sup with him. The NIV says I'll come in and I'll eat with him. I will sit down and I will have a meal with him. This is Jesus talking. Talking to the church of Laodicea. And he's saying, look, I stand at the, the, the door at knock. And, and what is the passage right before it? Discipline. Rebuking. Right? This is a relationship. And Jesus says, if you open that door, if you let that, if you let that Jesus in, you'll know peace. And we'll sit down and we'll have a meal together. That's the picture. There's another picture of it. It's in Exodus chapter 34. If you'll turn there, and this is where we're going to close. Because I want you to see, I want you to see that this meal has at its very core peace. In Exodus 34, here's, here's the setup. The Lord has said to Moses, verse 1, come up. To the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. And so Moses went and he told all the people, all the Lord's words and laws, and they responded with one voice. Verse 3, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Verse 4, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. And he got up early the next morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes. Verse 5. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and they sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And then Moses took half the blood and he put it in bulls and the other half he splashed against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people and they responded. Everything the Lord has commanded, we will obey. And then Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it where? On the people. Right? This is the sacrifice. This is the picture, the image. It's on the altar. It's on the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, they went up and they saw the God of Israel and under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis as bright blue as the sky. Verse 11 is the key. And God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. And what? They ate and they drank. Now that is a picture. A 
The 70 elders, Aaron, Moses, Nadab, and Abihu, they've gone up to the mountain. The sacrifices have been altered. The blood has been shed, spread on them. And they're there. They're in the presence of the Lord. They see the Lord. And He doesn't consume them. Why? Because of the sacrifice. Because He invited them into His presence. And so the Lord invites them into His presence. And there's a sacrifice. And they're there. And they sit at the feet of the Lord. And they eat and they drink. That's the picture at the end of chapter 31 in Genesis. Jacob, Laban, together, they've been at war for a long time. Jacob's been very unhappy. Laban's been very unhappy. They've come to the end of this relationship. And as they sit down, two broken parties that have been scheming against one another all along, they both have an ear for God, though. And so they sit down. A sacrifice is offered by Jacob. And they eat a meal together. Let me ask you a question. Where else do you see this picture? Where else do you see a sacrifice in a meal? The first Sunday of every month, we sit together. I wish we had a way. Maybe, maybe someone can come up with a, a way for us to depict a meal together. Maybe we can one Sunday do something where we sit and actually have a meal. The Lord's Supper. Together. Because somehow I don't think we capture the image when we have the little wafer and the little juice. What it represents. But what it represents is that last meal that Jesus had with his disciples as he was offering himself as a sacrifice. See, that meal signifies what for us? When we sit and we have that meal together the first Sunday of the month, it signifies that we are at peace with God. See, at every right relationship, there's a sacrifice. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to close with this, says in Philippians chapter 2, this is what he says. He says, you and I should have the same attitude as that of Christ, who being in very nature God being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself of all of that. And he came down, he took on the form of a man, and he went to the cross. And Paul says, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you in your relationships. You see how A right relationship can happen when there's a sacrifice at the heart of it. Both the sacrifice of Christ that we know we're right with God. Think of how much you can give up. If you know you're right with God, you need to be right. I I, I really like to be right. I like to be right when Jody and I are at it. It's hard to believe we've ever been at it, but once or twice. I like to be right. I want to be right. You know what Paul's telling us? He's telling us, listen, Jesus didn't have to be right. He came down. He gave up all of those rights in order to make a right relationship for us with God. And for you to have a right relationship, the easiest, quickest way there, and at the heart of every good and right relationship is going to be a sacrifice. 
both the sacrifice of Christ and your sacrifice as you look to the Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to see in the pages of Scripture men who didn't always get it right, getting it right in the end. And so we thank you. Thank you for the story of Jacob, the story of Laban. Father, we thank you that you've made the way for us, that even in our relationships, with broken parties involved, we can still be right. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like in each individual relationship, we want to be right. And so help us. Help us as a congregation. Help us as spouses. Help us with our children, with our grandchildren, with our in-laws. Whatever that relationship is, Father, we pray We will get our theology right, that our relationships will be restored, and that they'll be good both for us and for your glory.